I'm not going to have the song of praise. <laughs> I did that before. Well, it's good to be here this morning, everyone. Anyone uh, get woken up by the thunderstorm last night? Yeah? That was amazing. I love that smell. I haven't smelled that for a while. We used to get some really good, uh, you know, I don't know if you can use good in thunderstorm at the same sentence, but we had some really powerful storms go through central Illinois. And seeing the Mamatis cloud this morning, you know, the, they call it Mamatis. It's a Latin for utter. So if you can get a visual of what it is, um, it's the underside of a cumuliminous cloud. Anyway, severe thunderstorm. Um, just see, smelling that last night, and seeing the lightning flash and hearing the thunder crash, you think, what will it be when we hear the Lord's voice? There's a lot of power up there in those storms. And the wind, Bethany said she heard some trees cracking. Um, That's not a good thing. The lights kept blinking. We wondered if we were going to have power in the morning. (laughs) But uh, let's have prayer before we go any further. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could be here the Sabbath day. Father, this is a day you have ordained. This is a day you've called us together. Father, as we look about the scriptures, as we see in the scriptures the righteousness of Christ, Father, help us to understand the principles of your kingdom. Because, Father, these are the filters that will get us through. It's not what we can do, Father. It's what Jesus has done But as we follow him, Father, he is more than an example to us. He is our Savior. Help us, Father, to see him in that light. In his name we ask, amen. If you look at the storms that we have, it's just a natural outflowing of nature. You have high-pressure systems. You have low-pressure systems. You have weather. the uh, winds are blowing out of one into the other. And then as the moisture builds and then the clouds form, at some point they reach critical mass and they start releasing. And then with the rain falling, you get static building up and so you get lightning. And then as the lightning strikes, it pushes the air apart and then it collapses suddenly at that vacuum and then you get the thunder. All of these things are natural processes that have been established really from the beginning of time, but really it wasn't really going into effect until... Sin came into the world, and then after the flood, that's just the natural progression of things. But sin was not a part of God's original plan. God had a plan for sin, but it wasn't part of his original plan. But Jesus, in the scriptures, we see that he came to free us from sin. And believing on him, we accept his righteousness. In the book of John, and I talk, spoke, mentioned this in Sabbath school. How many times is the, the word believe or a variation of believe mentioned in the scriptures? My boys should know because I mentioned this last week at church. Right, Dave? 84 times. Of all the books in the Bible, believe is mentioned more times in the book of John than any other book. And what's the most well-known verse in all scriptures? Just about. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, who did he love? This world. Who was it that loved? God loved this world that he gave. He gave of himself, his only begotten son, that whosoever. Now, who's a whosoever? Anyone. 
anyone that believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So there's a, a relationship that God has here, and that relation is all about believing. What does it mean to believe? Well, whenever we flip the light switch on this morning, or you turn the water tap on, what do you think is going to happen? There's a natural result. You turn something, water comes out. Why? Because there's a mechanism already in place that that's going to happen. Turn the light switch on, the power's out, no lights. Because you've been disconnected from the source. Jesus is the source of all life. He is the source of all strength. If we're disconnected from him, we're not believing in him. But in the scriptures, not all truths are right there on the surface. Um, There was a time where you could um, go down to Illinois. And after, for instance, my grandpa, he would do this every year. I don't know if it's legal to do it anymore or not, but you could go out into a field, and if you see a, after somebody had tilled, my grandpa, for instance, would till up his field. After he tilled up his field, he would walk through. He would find Indian um, arrowheads. He would find tomahawk hatchets. He would find pottery. He'd find all kinds of Indian artifacts in his field. There was a natural outcome after the, the tilling of the soil They were right there on the surface of the ground. He could pick them up. He had this huge board about this big of arrowheads that he had found. And it was really impressive to look at that. You see a lot of these things. But they were on the surface for him. Where had they been all this time? Did they just evolve there overnight? There was somebody had to make them at some point, and then they got lost in the field and to hunt or whatever. So there's a natural consequence, but in all these things, there's a part that we have to play in it. How many of you have heard this quote? And this is from Ellen White. She says, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. How many of you heard that? Some of you, okay. What did she, she continues on saying, I have answered It is the third angel's message in verity. Now, what does the word verity mean? Hmm? Truly? I didn't hear. I've got the advantage of the microphone. (laughs) So, in reality, in the fullness of truth, the third angel's message is justification by faith. Okay, so what is the third angel's message? What is justification by faith? We're going to look at that. So here's the question. By whose faith are we justified in? Or by who? Let me say that again. Who by faith are we justified in? Who are we justified in? Who's our faith in? Jesus. Why? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Christ the righteous one. Jesus is the only one to have come to this earth and to be the only righteous person born of the seed of a woman. You know, looking at this church this morning reminds me of a quote that Mrs. White said, and this is not to say anything, but the enemy will sometimes set up camp in the front row because he'll distract all these other things. And, you know, many times when I'm sitting back there, there, there's kind of a, there's a sense in church that it's just kind of restful, and the enemy, he kind of 
get sleepy, get tired. You ever have that when doing church? I know, not everybody is the most dynamic. We're not all Doug Batchelor, you know. I'm sure he has his moments too. But consider what we're talking about here, the righteousness of Christ and the third angel's message. When the third angel's message and the righteousness of Christ are brought together, we're really, we're at the cusp of this whole plan of salvation. So that's why I'm digging into this. What is faith in Jesus? It's putting our faith. When your kids go on a teeter-totter, do you play on the teeter-totter alone? Anybody do a teeter-totter all by yourself? You can, you know, you sit on one board and you go up and down. But is that the way the teeter-totter was designed? No, Jonathan's shaking his head, no. Now, sometimes the guys, there's two on one side, I'm on the other side. There is a natural consequence with these things. Whenever we put our faith in God, he is going to provide for us. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment? What did he say? We're going to do more audience participation today. Love the Lord your God with what? Heart and your soul and your, and love your, your enemy as yourself, right? <laughs> Sometimes. God was giving him a, giving to us a filter for what, our, what should go through our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say anything about what the neighbor's doing. It's love your neighbor. It's an outward. It's a, you're transmitting love to them, regardless of what's coming back. Did Jesus love the Pharisees? Did he love the Sadducees? Did he love the Herodians? He loved everyone. And it wasn't just, oh, I love him. He was showing an active love towards them, and he was trying to keep them connected to his father. But the principle that ruled Jesus' heart was love to God and love to his fellow man. And if you look at the Ten Commandments, you see that in the first four and the last six. And even, even in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, and let's look at that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. What does that no reputation mean? When he came here, he was born of a poor family in very poor circumstances. He allowed that to be. And then in his family growing up, they were subsisting day by day, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So not only was he brought into the world in a humble situation, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Who was he obedient to? To his father. Uh, to, growing up, he submitted to his parents, but then at that critical time, he was submitting to his parents and to God. And then at 30 years old, he was submitting to God completely. To the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus is started at the very bottom, and he worked, and God brought him to the highest point. You look at Lucifer, what did he do? 
He wanted the top, and God's going to take him to the bottom and destroy him. Satan tried to destroy Christ. Didn't work. God raised him up. So, we've already talked about John 3.16 as our creator. Jesus is the only being in the universe that can forgive us of our sins. How does he forgive us of our sins? By believing in him. And then the Holy Spirit plants in us the seed of righteousness in our hearts. How does he do that? By us extending that, that momentary faith, that just that making that commitment and following through with baptism. What it, but it has to be a choice. Everything in this universe is all focused on choice. God gave the universe, especially the angels, he gave the inhabited planets, he gave everyone choice. Adam and Eve were the only ones that made that choice contrary to God's will. But it's all through a choice. And so we allow, by believing in him, we are letting God, we're submitting to him. Only through his righteousness have we the power to resist temptation. Now you look at the temptations Jesus faced. What were the temptations? Were the temptations that Jesus faced, were they powerful? Were they strong? Could we have withstood those temptations? Do you think even for a moment we could have withstood one of those temptations? Look at what we had, look what Jesus had to do. Matthew chapter 4. It's one thing, okay, for instance, your cell phone. Is, can a cell phone be used for good? Obviously. Can your cell phone be used for bad? Okay. So that's within our control. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. His body, at some point, is most likely craving sustenance. He's hungry. He's been in the wilderness for 40 days in the presence of his father, but then Satan comes to him and tempts him. Now, for us, turning a rock into bread is not a temptation. But for us, our temptation is right there in the palm of our hand. What are you going to do with that device? Are you going to use it for good, or are you going to use it for evil? Jesus had the same choice. Is he going to use this temptation that Satan's given him? Rock, feet, you know, rock could turn to bread, and he could feed. There is a way, probably, otherwise Satan would have tempted him, to turn that. God used a rock to produce water in the wilderness for the children of Israel. So there was, there was some kind of temptation in this when Satan comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan had faith that Jesus could do that. But Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's, God, it's obedience to God that we are going to survive these times, the, any of these temptations or anything that we face. If it's a contrary if what the devil is tempting us to do is contrary to God's word, don't do it. Then the devil takes him up on a, a, the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Now notice what the devil says here in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. He shall give his angels charge over you and, like dot, 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 in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. But looking where Satan is quoting that from, it says to keep you in all your ways. And that's from 
Psalms chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. There's a part that Satan omits, that dot, 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 because what he's, what he's skipping over is to keep you in all your ways. So in obedience to God, to keep you in all your ways, if you keep to God's command, then the angels will give charge of you and they will lift you up so your feet won't strike a rock. But Satan is taking it out of context and saying, look, the Bible says if you jump from here, the angels are going to pick you up. Was that a temptation for Jesus? He could have. He could have jumped off and the angels, but that would have been saving himself. He would have been using the authority that God had given him through his ministry to save himself. It's like somebody taking money that's given to the company and using it for themselves. Jesus would have, it would have been all over. And I don't want to minimize these, but do you see there's, ever, there's eternal principles in these verses here. And again, the devil took him up to an extremely high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and glory and said to them, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. What is the last struggle in Revelation? What's it going to be about? Worship. And Satan says, worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In those three temptations, Jesus had to face the principle. He had to uphold the principles of God's kingdom. And that was the beginning of the ministry of Jesus' entire ministry, completely hungered, yet it wasn't yet time. And many times, what did Samuel tell Saul whenever he came to Saul? And he said, Saul, what's this I hear? All these sheep bleeding and all this stuff? Didn't you do what God told you? Or even God going to Adam and Eve? Why do you say you're naked? Because they didn't trust God in that instance. And so God had to back up and say, this isn't what I told you to do. In Jesus' case, he did exactly what his father had told him. He kept the principles of God. When Jesus was on the mountain in Matthew chapter 26, three times he went to his disciples. Now, who, which disciples were with Jesus on the mountain? Here's another trivia question. Who were the disciples? On the Mount of Transfiguration, who was there? Who can answer? Who? Peter, James, and John, three, okay. Whenever Jesus hired, or when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, who was in the room with Jesus? Peter, James, and John, right, Samuel? So who was on the Mount of Gethsemane with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. They had an experience with Jesus. Up on the Mount of Transfiguration, something happened. God's presence came down. They missed it because they were sleeping. Whenever Jesus was with Jairus, here's a little girl. She's only 10 or so years old. You know, she's 12 years old. And she's laid out, and they're saying, what are you going to do? She's dead. And they're laughing at him. Jesus, Peter, James, and John, mom and dad, they go in there. And Jesus says, little girl, I say, do you get up? And then she says, I'm hungry. He says, feed her. In that, Jesus showed them he had the power of life and death. Up on the mountain, God's presence, Moses and Elijah were up there. They had special revelations that none of the other disciples had. So Jesus took these three disciples that had this extra sense of who he was, and Peter even said, you are the son of God. 
So these three, and notice in history, who was it? James was the first one to die. Um, Peter, crucified upside down. John was the one to live the longest. There on the Mount of Gethsemane, when Jesus was going through all of this in Matthew chapter 26, let's see, yeah, 26 verse 36. Jesus came to them to a place in Gethsemane, sit here while I go over there and pray. And Peter, James, and John were there. And he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. He says, this is going to kill me. Jesus was not exaggerating. No, this headache is killing me. No, he was saying, this is going to kill me. Please pray for me. There's a song in our hymnal, George Corliss used to love to sing. Pray, it's, I forget the exact words, maybe you remember it, but it's, um, my friends, pray for me. I forget the number on the hymnal, but it's in there. Jesus saying, please, friends, pray for me. And so he goes a little further, and he pours out his heart. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will. So Jesus is, again, the principles of the kingdom are still being manifested in Jesus in his decisions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He was willing to die for mankind, but only if it was God's will. So he goes and finds the disciples, and he says, What? Can you not watch with me one hour? It's not a prophetic time period. It's just literally just a short amount of time, guys. Can't you just stay awake? But the enemy, he's waving their arms fast, their wings fast, to put those disciples back to sleep. And he's trying to do that to us. Oh, the cares of the world is so much fun. Pay attention. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And you know, right there, there's part of the message to Laodicea. Their eyes are heavy. Then he came to them, came to the disciples again and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus, he had to drink the bitter cup alone. He invited the three disciples that had the clearest revelation of God's character to be with him right there, and they failed him. They fell asleep. They, they, Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So then in, Matthew, or in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is hanging on the cross. The Pharisees, they've had their way with him. The Sadducees, same thing. The Herodians, all of them, they finally got him where they wanted. They were trying to kill him, and now he's hanging on the cross, and it's not enough. Isn't it the way sin is? No matter what Satan tempts you to do, it's never enough. So then in Mark chapter 15, verse 29, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Have you ever had somebody wag their head at you? Isn't that embarrassing? It's just humiliating when somebody's just like, you are so... Okay. Wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days. Well, that's not what he said, but they're ridiculing him. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Could he have done that? Was that a temptation? Absolutely. He could have come down. He could have just moved his hands and right there. Do you remember whenever Malchus's ear got chopped off? What, where was Jesus' hands? They were tied firmly behind him, and a centurion was holding his hands, and Jesus freed his hands, 
reached down, picked up the ear, put it back on, and said, enough of this. Jesus could have pulled himself off the cross, but it was because of the love your Lord, Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Obedience to God kept him on the cross. Love for mankind. And so they divide, let's see, verse um, 20, 29 through 32. So let the king, the Christ of Israel, descend now from the cross so we may see and believe. How many times they say, Jesus, do some miracle for us. They kept saying that over and over and over. And now they say, now we'll believe if you do this. It was just another temptation. Satan was throwing stuff at him right and left. You talk about a Category 5 hurricane. I've never been through that. Even what we went through last night is not even a tropical storm. Can you imagine every demon on the entire planet was focused in on Calvary that one afternoon? They were all screaming as loud as they can. There is a story in 1860, Jonathan was 1860, Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was nominated, was, there, was there was a contest basically to see who would be the Republican presidential candidate. And in this contest, there was part, the Republican Party was divided. Some wanted Seward, some wanted another, there were several several people in the running. Abraham Lincoln was way in behind. But the Republican committee knew if they worked this out, they could get what they wanted. They wanted, they wanted Lincoln in there. So what they did is they took two guys that had the loudest voices ever. You could hear them yelling across Lake Michigan whenever a storm was going. These guys had booming voices, okay? Then they also took, they had a, they, they had paid attention to the hog calling contests throughout the whole state of Illinois. Every state, every um, county fair, they had a hog calling contest. They got every single person that won, they gave them a free train ticket, a free train ticket to Chicago, and they pushed them in through the gates and all the people that were supposed to be there, they pushed out. And so all these hog people, all these hog callers, are inside this big auditorium. And you have these two big guys, like the big stereo, on left and on the right. And these guys had mass, and Jonathan's laughing back there, <laughs> massive voices. And they told him, okay, there's going to be a gentleman up here. He's got a red handkerchief. What you do is as soon as you see that red handkerchief, holler. And so what they did, every time a vote came up, the guy with the red handkerchief, whenever it was, he saw it was right time he pulled out his handkerchief, it was the noisiest, screamingest bedlam that anybody had ever heard. It was so ear-piercing that people were just, just overwhelmed by this because, and every time they got closer they kept pushing and pushing and pushing until they finally weighed down the people <laughs> and Lincoln got into office because of this tactic. Now, can you imagine? And when you read it, it's, it's, it's humorous the way you read it, but you can imagine when Jesus was on the cross, every demon in hell was screaming at the top of his lungs, don't, don't. They were just screaming, don't do it, 
just get off the cross. And he was, he stayed true to his father. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, as your neighbor, as yourself. So, the root word for believe is mentioned, like I said, 84 times. In John chapter 1, verse 7, John was sent, as a man, was as sent as a witness to shine the light of truth on Jesus so that all would believe. The whole focus of the universe was on Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, believing in the righteousness of Christ, all will be lost, but those who believe will be saved. Let's go to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Verses 9, 10, and 11. We read the third angel's message, and it, it makes sense, kind of, because it's talking about the mark of the beast and all this stuff. But notice these key words that we've already been talking about. In verse 9, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, comma, what's the key word in there? Worship. What was Jesus tempted, tempted in the first round of temptations with the Satan? What was that first temptation he was? Worship. So if anybody worships the beast, well, Jesus did not worship Satan. He stood firm when it came to a test on worship. The next verse, verse 10. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. What's it all talking about? The cup of his indignation, the cup. What did Jesus face in that second story that we went through on the Mount of Gethsemane when his three trusted disciples were right there with him? He drank the bitter cup. Then in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Was Jesus given any rest on the cross? They didn't have, he didn't have any rest in that. Satan wants us to look over this and miss this, that Jesus faced the temptation to worship Satan, and he didn't. Jesus had to drink the bitter cup. He was at the, in Gethsemane, Lord, I don't, Father, take this cup from me. No, son, you have to drink the cup. So the wicked... If the wicked, if those who choose not to believe in Christ, they're going to worship. They have no other choice. They're going to worship the beast. If they do not believe in Christ, if they do not trust him, if they don't have that faith connection with him, they will drink the cup of his indignation and they will have no rest. But if you do trust Christ, if you do have that relationship with him, you will say, I am not going to worship the beast. And you will not have to drink the cup of the the wrath of God because Jesus has already drank it. When Jesus drank that, that cup of indignation, he was accepting the second death experience. So when he went on the cross and they were saying, come down from the cross, and they were giving him any rest, he knew that he was going to be separated from his father throughout eternity. He accepted that because he loved his father with all his heart, soul, and mind, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He was willing to sacrifice so that we could be blessed for that. So what is the meaning of life in all these things? What is it all about? Where did our life begin? At the moment of conception. Where does that spiritual life begin? When does eternal life begin? Does eternal life begin when Jesus comes through the clouds and all that? 
No. It begins whenever we accept him into our heart. That's when that seed of righteousness is planted in us. Our hearts change. Just like at the moment of conception, things start changing rapidly. God wants to change us from the inside out. But there are some that think it's faith, righteousness by faith and works. We got to do something. Well, look at what Jesus' example was in John chapter 12 and 13. John chapter 12. Verses, um, verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but this, this, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who has bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes to pass that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. In John chapter 12 and 13, Jesus is talking, is going to the, the um, Passover feast leading up to the Passover. But also in chapter 12, Jesus is talking about the works. If you don't believe me, believe the works. Is it the miracles that Jesus has done? Can Satan do miracles? Absolutely. So is it the actual miracles that is going to help us decide who, who we're going to follow? It's the character of the one that's doing the miracles. What are the miracles for? It's to glorify God. Look at John, you know, you look at the stories in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. Or you have John chapter, um, John chapter 8 with Mary Magdalene. All these different stories. Jesus has taken these people from a life of hopelessness and he's given them great hope. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus says, there are going to be some that say, Lord, Lord, did we not dot, 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 all these things. That's not what works is. Works, the works of Jesus is trusting and obeying your heavenly Father. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what true works is. If you want an acronym for works, willingly obedient to my risen King and Savior. If that's what your works are, willingness, yes, righteousness by faith and works. But if your works is, Lord, look at all the things we've done for you, no, you missed it. Because God doesn't want people, let me put it this way, people that are focused on works, heaven will be held to them. But people that are focused on the righteousness of Christ, that relationship for them, heaven will be heaven to them. He wants us to be there because we want to be there, because we love him. We've seen what he does. We've seen what he's done in others' lives, and we say we want to be with him. There's no other place we'd want to be. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17, it's talking about the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness that Jesus wore. That goes into the, the Acts where Jesus is talking, or Paul's talking about the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. It was his righteousness. Jesus was the embodiment of righteousness. Like Abraham, we can believe in God's faithfulness. Believing in God's faithfulness is righteousness. Jesus knew his father. He could have done anything, but he chose to strip himself of divinity 
and live a life as a person. And in that righteous life that he lived, he's not our example so much. He's our Savior. It's that righteousness that he puts in our hearts. We believe that he laid down everything. His saving power was manifested in his life. His was a completely sinless life. He sent the Holy Spirit to freely give us power that all that we have to do is to receive his power and accept it and believe in him. By believing in him, we believe in his Father who sent him. And it's that relationship. You read in John again. He keeps saying, he says time and time again, it's my Father. It's a relationship. Whenever Jesus was with the disciples, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you have not seen the Father? Or Thomas, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the way, truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Christ and his righteousness. It's not impossible. It's just accepting his sacrifice on our behalf. This is the core of this whole righteousness by faith because it is not our works that's going to get us. It's his works that he's done and his works pointed to his father, glorifying his father in a way that we will all be drawn closer to him. God wants us to be in his kingdom with us, with him. Again, if you ever question this, read the book of John. Underline the word believe. Go through there. You'll be surprised how many times Jesus keeps going back to believe. And then look at the times where every chapter starts with a controversy, Jesus keeps it right on focus. Starts with another controversy, Jesus keeps it right on focus. All these things point to him as not only the savior of the world, but he's the redeemer of the world. He wants us more than anything else to be with him in paradise with him. Our closing song is number 100, um, Great is Thy Faithfulness, number 100.
Father, thank you so much for this Sabbath day. Please be with us as we go home and bless us. And thank you so much for this rain that we've needed so much. Please be with the people whose power is out and um, who have lots of trees that have gone down. And bless everyone here today. Amen.